Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Thanks very much. A warm welcome to you all for coming in a full capacity house um, to a, a very learned and informed panel discussion, reading and writing slowly in the digital age. And I think it's pretty evident even from the title of our panel, some of the contradictions or possibly tensions um, around the fact that uh, anybody has time to read or write um, in the digital age, uh, and also a bit of a challenge to think about uh, the digital age at different speeds or, or different uh, temporalities. I was thinking uh, in preparation for a little introduction about what my relation to reading and writing digitally might be, and I recollect that a shocking number of decades ago now, <laughs> about 25 years ago when I was uh, writing my PhD, I was moving from writing in longhand, which was how I wrote my 30,000 word master's thesis, to thinking about um, buying an electronic computer, which seemed like you know rocket to the moon technology, to write my 80,000 PhD thesis, and my supervisor, who was a bit of a, a whiz sort of technophile, convinced me to invest in uh, the first sort of Mac computer, which was pretty much the scale and size of that lectern, <laughs> um, and which I used to travel with in a big padded bag. I thought it was portable. I used to take it between New Zealand and Australia with me because I was incredibly modern, as you can imagine. Uh, but the, the real thing that I was thinking about was, initially, I just could not write on a keyboard. I, my brain did not think in a keyboard kind of a way. And so I would spend you know, hours of agonizing PhD time sort of just like hovering over it uselessly like someone unable to play a piano. And I developed a habit which was I carried my giant computer back home to my flat and I would go to my office every day and I would write out in longhand in the way that I was accustomed to do. And then in the evening I would do what I thought of as transcription. I would transcribe onto my computer, and in the transcription, then sometimes I would edit using this amazing cut-and-paste facility that, that is in modern computers. <laughs> um, you know, years passed, as you can imagine, and now I find myself completely unable to write for thinking with a pen. I can, you know, maybe write a, a, a shopping list. I feel hard-pushed to write a birthday card, but now my writing thinking, and I'm both an academic and a novelist, is only possible uh, on, a, on a keyboard. So there's something very interesting about uh, writing at any rate, and I'm sure we will have some things to say about reading, but to think about um, maybe denaturalizing our own relations to the digital environments we find ourselves in will be part of what will make tonight um, very interesting. So let me just explain to you a teensy bit about the format. Uh, I'm going to introduce each of our speakers in turn um, and give them a kind of five-minute opportunity to uh, lay out a bit of a position in relation to the, the topic for tonight. And then we'll run through the four of them, and then we'll come back to a more sort of joined-up conversation in which I encourage my panellists to pick up points that other people have made and kind of elaborate on them or disagree even. We hold disagreeing well as a value at the University of Sydney, so I'll, I'll call for well-made disagreements. And then... At a certain point, we'll pitch over to the audience for some questions. 
Also, uh, to match the theme, I am uncharacteristically talking from my iPad, which I've never actually done before. And when I boldly, perhaps even show-offily, told that to Beth, she said, oh, I'd never do that in case my battery ran out, which, of course, I suddenly looked at my battery and thought, well, it's a little bit low. So if I only get to introduce Mark and can't explain to you who these other three colleagues are, um, you will know what is happening there. So let us introduce, with great pleasure, Dr. Mark Tredenick. Winner of the Montreal Poetry Prize in 2011 and the Cardiff Poetry Prize the following year, 2012, marks the author of The Blue Plateau, Fire Diary, and nine other acclaimed works of poetry and prose. His online biographical note includes this fantastic line, once upon a time he was a lawyer, which I think sounds like the start of a really great novel, or perhaps <laughs> even a great poem. I should stop being so sort of genreist. His work is widely published in Australian and overseas newspapers and journals, including Australian Poetry, Blue Dog, Five Bells, Indigo, Island, Isotope, Kunapipi, this is telling us about the kind of Antipodean titles of our poetry journals, I think, mm. Mianjin, Orion, Pan, Southerly, Snorkel, The Grove, The Sun Herald, The Sydney Morning Herald, Wet Ink, World Literature Today. He writes regularly for newspapers, including The Australian, The Sun Herald, and The Sydney Morning Herald. He talks and teaches widely on writing, landscape, justice, and ecology. And for over a decade, he's run writing programs here at the University of Sydney, and also at writers' centres in Australia and the United States. He runs them these days, too, in his cow shed in Baradoo. He mentors aspiring writers, and now and then, he edits a manuscript in need of help. He teaches grammar and composition, and he consults on writing matters with clients in business and government. And for 10 years before all that, Mark was a book editor and publisher, and currently writer-in-residence at the Sydney School of Education and Social Work. Mark. And once upon a time, he was a lawyer. <laughs> um, from under the shower, I look up at jacaranda blossoms, suicide bombers in party dresses, fallen overnight on the skylight in the rain, and I think of you, the tender, hopeful violence of the sacrifice involved in loving me, each kiss a pretty body part, a broken fall from grace. I just thought I'd start with the poem. I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the lyric, make an argument for a kind of lyric sensibility. Um, I guess there's a risk uh, of my being seen here as uh, arguing against speed, and I just wanted to say at the outset, some things I love when they go fast. I like it when aeroplanes go fast, because they stay up. I like it when the traffic moves. Um, quite fast, actually, and I like it when people who are driving slowly don't drive in the fast lane. Don't do that, okay? Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really not a debate here about uh, fast versus slow, one being better than the other, but it is, I think, about a, m a mode of um, communicating and, uh, you know, living an existence. Uh, the idea for this um, conversation came out of a book that I've been very, very slow in writing, as it happens, uh, called Reading Slowly at the End of Time. 
And uh, that book began as a kind of goad to myself to get reading again. So one of the things I wanted to say tonight is that I observe that I think we have something of a crisis in, um, in reading in our culture, but as soon as I... That's an observation from teaching Sydney University and UTS students. <laughs> but it may well be that I have a crisis in reading. Uh, it would be fair to say I find that when my life is incredibly speedy, the one thing I need to do is the last thing I can do, which is find the pace at which reading becomes an acceptable choice. And when I force myself through the barrier, I'm taken back into a kind of depth of self and breadth of being in the world that isn't possible at, at uh, speed. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say at the outset was that I suffer from screen fatigue. Does anybody else? I, whenever I ask my 20-something students, they all go, nah, they're fine, it's cool. I honestly do. I'm on the, on looking at a screen so much of my life, and it's, you know, you pay your bills, you communicate with the children, uh, you check the online program because universities don't publish them offline much anymore, and I understand why, but I've, I've, uh, if I, sometimes I swear if I have to enter a, a password another time, I think I might just do something violent. Um, so that makes me appreciate the democracy of books, although when I say that, I'm conscious that that's easy for me to say because I've got a house full of books and I've had the privilege to be able to buy them and, and, uh, and house them. But there is something terribly democratic about a book. You just pick it up and open it, any page you like, no password required. Um, it's a beautiful technology, the book in itself. The book that I'm writing, reading slowly at the end of the time, isn't mostly an argument for books as objects, but I love books as objects, and I, I think some of the, my fellow panelists might speak to that as well. But there is something in the engagement with depth, the physical actuality of the object of the book, that uh, I think, in ha and the engagement with the, the type on the page, that, that kind of thing, that evokes, elicits a response, from me anyway, and I don't think I'm alone, uh, that I don't quite get in the digital space. I love the digital space. I'm very glad to be a writer alive now. You can look up anything you like uh, without leaving home. I'm not sure that that's conducive to the mental health always of writers, though, or the physical health, because you don't have to walk anywhere. You don't have to go to the library. Um, it's there, but that is a gift. It's a huge gift that we have here. I guess my, the concern I have about um, the digital space is that we let it become the master, not the servant. When it's serving us, it's beautiful. I have that concern in the classroom as well. I think it's wonderful to have access to, uh, at any given point, to, uh, to teaching online using the technology, but nothing beats the engagement between two human beings. Um, there's something about that that's, that's uh, magical. I had an experience today, having said that I would appear on ra radio to speak slowly about um, slowness. So first I slept through my alarm uh, and then I had to call and make urgent repairs um, and um, then I spoke on air and I've been sort of running late um, ever since. So as soon as you utter a pronouncement like uh, the soul arrives at the pace of a camel, which is a beautiful old Arabic thing, then sure enough you will yourself walk all day at the pace of a camel. But one thing I learned was having been underprepared for a uh, a class really and running a little bit late for it was the best class I've ever taught because I turned up and sort of 
trusted that there were some things that, hey, the students might know, and some things that, you know, I might know, and we sort of, um, you know, shared a real live, actual human experience, and then we were talking about the literatures of protest, in particular music, today, and it was wonderful for them and me just to be able to go YouTube, find whichever clip we wanted, play the music in class, um, and that was wonderful. One of the pieces that the students wanted to choose as an instance of the music of protest was um, the 1812 Overture, uh, which is of course 48 minutes long. So um, I said, you're going to have to skip to the bit where the cannon come in, you know, at the, at the end, so fast and slow, right? Um, so just to close, because I've probably eaten up my, my, my time, but just, I mentioned the lyric at the outset, it's an elusive notion, uh, poetry is a lyric form, a fair bit of what I uttered at at the outset in that uh, poem would require the third and the fourth and the fifth reading and um, it's good sometimes to hear a poem uttered on the voice in which it's written in particular or on any voice but and something will be brought to, to that um, encounter as a listener with the poem but something will also be lost because when we read the text on the page we have the capacity to read it out pace and to go back and forth and wander a little bit and write in the margins and so on. But the lyric for me is a, a kind of practice of living, which means that one stands and remains open to vibrate in response to the world that wants to give itself to you to some extent. It's a kind of space of witness. Um, it stands and uh, reading is an act of um, staying in the lyric space and resisting narrative sometimes and so not to have an argument with a novelist on stage and the narrative is fine but we do presume very often in the west that story uh, is what literature is but i think there's an well there's certainly an argument to be made that um uh that poetry offers up a kind of encounter with the mysterious with the spiritual uh that isn't available when uh, so much when narrative leads. We live in a very narrative society. Everything's a storyline with the presumed outcome. And poetry says, I don't know what the outcome is. This is an investigation in the moment. And it proceeds, if it's a written thing, largely through rhythm structures and at, at attending to the musical, the non-narrative dimensions um, of the word. And as, a, as, a re as, as an activity, in life, I think reading is lyric in the same way because it, it asks of us a slowness and fierce attention uh, to all that, that isn't merely uh, literal. So there are some thoughts that I wanted to make at the outset. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Well, let's raise a number of uh, threads, I think, already for us to uh, tease out across our discussions about the differences between fast and slow lifestyles and reading styles. Um, the differences between perhaps oral literature um, and print literature and the idea of the digital age as a radically storied space, um, maybe not so uh, mystically, but in Mark's rendition, almost um, torturously so. So let's move to our second panellist, um, Beth Yap. Uh, originally from Malaysia, Beth's an award-winning author of fiction and non-fiction whose work has been published in Australia and internationally. Her novel, The Crocodile Fury, was translated into several languages and her libretto, Moon Spirit Feasting, for composer Liza Lim, won the APRA Award for Best Classical Composition in 2003. Beth was the presenter of Elsewhere, 
a programme for travellers on ABC Radio National. Her latest publication is a collection of short stories, The Red Pearl and Other Stories, from Vagabond Press in 2017. Her travel memoir, Eat First, Talk Later, which I think is a good psychological profiling <laughs> title, was published in 2015 from Penguin Random House and shortlisted for the 2018 Adelaide Festival Award for Literature, Nonfiction. Beth teaches creative writing in the Department of English here at the University of Sydney. Beth. Thank you. Um, hi everyone. I've brought along my reading style, so I'm going to be reading you uh, a little bit today. Um, I've thinking about slowness um, and about being caught up in the speed of um, everyday living. Um, I found myself in the position of not being able to type. Um, for 10 days solid, um, you know, due to finger injuries. And that's been really interesting for someone who's always thought, I, you know, I have to write something every day, I have to type something every day. Um, so I feel like, and, and I, I'd agreed to be on this panel before this happened, so it's quite interesting, you know, thinking, feeling like, you know, I'm a bit of a hypocrite talking about slowness. And then suddenly being in that position of actually having to stand still, not even being slow. Um, I still feel a bit of the former, um, being caught up in speed, but advocating um, a slower um, way of being in the world. Um, so what I've brought along today is a couple of proposals and provocations, rather than any deeply thought-through conclusions or soulful solutions, and I picked that word soulful out of that blurb that we had for this evening, you know, soulfulness um, versus speed. On the surface of things, I very much agree that slowness, given as a fault when I was a child, when I dawdled wool gathering in Malaysia in the 1970s, in the days when TV was new, I saw TV arrive, first black and white, then color a few years later, along with Ultraman and Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. The internet was unheard of in those days, those faraway days. There, were only one, there was only one two-lane highway in Kuala Lumpur and no superhighways, informational or otherwise. Slowness, especially in reading and writing and thinking, now seems like an aspiration now that time has shortened away from those long-ago long days. Sometimes time is divided into five-minute bite-sized pieces, and we're all feeling short-changed by not having enough of it here in the city anyway, besieged by our contemporary dependencies on data and opinion, and our endless array of first-world distractions and entertainments delivered to us by our permanent appendages, which I love, my smartphone, my iPad, my laptop, my smart TV. To be distracted from destructus in Latin is to be drawn apart, maybe quartered, to be drawn and quartered. This is the feeling now, being sectioned, quartered, um, scheduled, and I kind of, um, when I think about slowness and speed, I hold that in opposition to childhood time, 
that time that stretches forever. And in Malaysia, we have this thing called rubber time. <laughs> so time actually does stretches. So you always arrive, you know, half an hour late, or sometimes even two hours late. Then and now, these oppositions that we so easily fall into, slowness and speediness, drawing apart time and place, corralling each in distinct sections of ways to think about how we live our lives. Then, here, there, here, then, now. In Malaysia, in the past, dawdling, I'm a child, here I'm older, though perhaps no wiser, thinking about the urgency of work schedules and bucket lists. Thinking about the child who dawdled and kept on dawdling over geckos and books, the days stretching forever, even as I was scolded for it. Hurry up, it's time. In the past, things were slower, now they're not. Slowness then was a fault, and in Malaysia, often a default. Time moved differently. Now our default is speed, but is it really? It seems common sense to say these things, to kind of pull, you know, put things in opposition and dichotomies, and perhaps not such a, um, you know, it's it's a way of thinking that um, I know I fall into, talking nostalgically of the past, um, which eat first, talk later is all about. Um, uh, but I think we can get trapped into thinking about the digital age as being fast. Um, and about speed as not being something that is um, experienced now. Um, you know, I think we experienced speed um, when I was a child. I just um, not at that intensity, perhaps. Um, my first proposal: the slow movements manifesto isn't so much to do with speed, but with the quality of experience of moving through time. It's not anti-speed, um, and as Mark said, you know, like it's very hard to be anti-speed when we're caught up in in speed. Um, it's so much a part. I mean, it's it's nice to grumble about it, but in actual fact, you know, I think uh, we're all trying to find strategies for dealing with um, the, you know, the the time that we're caught up in. What I like like about the slow movement. So Carl Honoré wrote, you know, what became the Bible of um, the slow movement um, in praise of slowness, and he said it's not, you know, it's not about being anti-speed, but it's actually finding it's it's about finding the right speed for the right thing, which is very different to saying speed is bad. You know, he's saying things, certain things demand um, certain kinds of speed. He calls it the correct speed. You know, I, I like to think of it as the soulful speed, perhaps, that we need to find in our rush. Um, it's about being present, living each moment fully, putting quality before quantity in everything from work and sex to food and parenting, to reading and writing. So this is what we tell our students, or what I tell my students, and you know, quite often what I tell my students is what I think I need to learn. <laughs> you know, so those in education, you know, you know, the thing you need to learn is the thing you're always telling your students to do, and then you're going like, hmm, can they do it? Um, we tell them to cultivate a radical attentiveness to the world, to pay radical attention to what is around us, um, to that crack in the pavement. Uh, on my way walking here, I didn't see it. 
Um, maybe it's there. I just invented it, novelist. Um, to those tiny moments uh, that, in, uh, as we go through the cotton wool of our everyday, as Virginia Woolf called it, um, these, um, the padding that allows us to get through the sectioning of our time, the scheduling of everything, right? We're stuck in cotton wool that enables us to go through our day. Um, what Virginia Woolf said is that we need it. The cotton wool is not bad. It allows us to get things done. Um, but then, every now and then, and it's a thing that you welcome as a writer, um, it's the tear, it's the rendering of the cotton wool of ordinary, everyday life. And she says, it's torn and something comes through. Um, Virginia Woolf called these uh, moments, moments of being, when we be instead of do. So what I say to um, people who want to be creative, uh, want to contemplate, want to think about the world, want to write about it, um, is that you cultivate this looking out for, being vulnerable to, being open to, being curious about that moment of being, um, that moment that is prob you know, perhaps frightening, um, so you don't know what's coming through. Um, Georges Bataille, uh, the French writer, called it uh, une déchirure, you know, the tear in the real in which the uncanny slips through. Virginia Woolf said, you know, sometimes it's death that comes through. It's the fear of death when you're a child, when you're six years old. But as a writer, you, as a writer, she welcomed it. Um, and, you know, so what we say to our students, maybe it's not about uh, fastness or slowness, but the mantra is rather um, about curiosity, um, about vulnerability, being open to it, being curious about it. And, we can't get away from vocabulary, <laughs> you know, the words to say it. Um, and I think that's something Mark was talking about also, you know, if you're a writer um, or if you speak, uh, if you converse, if you're a conversant, this is what we're interested in. How do we find the words to say the thing that can't be said? You know, quite often the moment of being can't um, be said. Um, I think I've used up my time now on my first proposal, so I'll talk a bit more about the others uh, in, uh, later on, um, if we've got time, but I'll stop there. Okay, great. Thanks, Beth. Well, that's certainly given us a lot to think about, starting, I think, autobiographically and thinking through um, childhood to adulthood as one kind of very specific inscription of time, and then coming back, I think, to problematise that and ask, is it really... A, a lived and remembered sense of being a child and now being an adult that makes time seem different? Or is it that you've lived through a historical period that has experienced an acceleration of time? And then I think to sort of close out on that idea of the radical attentiveness to the present moment, which Beth's ending by saying is maybe not about time at all, but seems to me to be about some sort of suspension of time, to be some sort of um, arrest of the passage of time in order to absorb some you know, piece of information that might otherwise escape you. It reminds me that some of my colleagues in art history, um, in, in a teaching context, are doing something that I think would fit in very well with your description of a radical attentiveness to time. They're asking their students, first-year students, to pick a, a work of art from a list of hundreds of works of art that are available to them in museums here in New South Wales. And when the students have picked their 
work of art, they learn that their homework assignment is to go and sit with that work of art for a consecutive three hours, no breaks. <laughs> and at first of all, the students express that kind of horror that I see passing over even <laughs> non-students' faces at such a you know, uh, cruel thing to, to ask. But the experience of sitting with their work of art for three hours never ever falls short of being transformational. And the, even the most reluctant, resistant students come back to class having admitted that the work of art addressed them in ways they had completely failed to see, even mm. though they had picked it as their favourite. So mm. I think there is a, a mm. real um, a lesson, probably for all of us, to thinking about being radically attentive. All right, and so to our third speaker, Dr. Megan Le Mazurier. Megan began working for the Department of Media and Communications in 2005 here at the University of Sydney and she still teaches in the undergraduate and postgraduate programs. She studied music at the Sydney Conservatorium, graduated with honours in history from the University of Sydney and received her PhD here in 2008. Her professional life began briefly in the academy after which she worked in the magazine industry for many years as a journalist and an editor. She's currently researching and writing a book on slow magazines, Indies in print in a digital age. Megan. I'm going to take the discussion of slow reading and writing somewhere different um, towards slow journalism, which has been an interest and a passion of mine, and this is a, a flagrant self-promotion. This book came out just recently, um, a collection of essays that I edited on slow journalism. Um, whenever I talk about slow journalism, people say, what is it? So my first question, and a way to explain what slow journalism is, is to ask, why now? Because anybody who knows the history of journalism knows that there's always been slow journalism. People have been writing literary journalism and essays, you know, it goes back for centuries. But the slow journalism movement is something that Beth alluded to, it comes out of slow food. And the way I can best describe it, it's a critical reaction to the speed and problems of fast journalism. So this term, slow journalism, arises now because the problems it's addressing are very current. Okay, so I'll just make that clear. There are three reasons, I think, and I think they're all intertwined, and, and they're all reasons that I think we all relate to. One is information overload. There is just too much information coming out of the fire hose too quickly. Um, the other one is the attention economy. We are all distracted. We can't pay attention. And journalists are trying to get us to pay attention, but there are forces working against that. And the other thing is the, the industrial nature of journalism, which is that it's just very fast. Okay. This speed has caused problems in journalism, and these, I'm sure, are all very familiar to you the loss of fact-checking. There are journalists who don't leave the newsroom to write stories anymore. There are journalists who report stories before they even happen because they know they have to report them so fast. I'm not kidding, this actually happens. Um, there's a dependency on PR material and the wire services, which is called journalism. 
There's more journalism produced than ever before, but there is less diversity. And I'm sure you've noticed this. You go to various sites and you think, I've read this, I've read this, mm. I've read this. How many times do you have to tell me this story? Um, the mantra is speed it up and spread it thin. And of course, speed and competition lead to ethical problems that we've all been made aware of over the last 10 years especially. And now things are getting worse. We have alternative facts, we have fake news, we have clickbait. If you read digitally, you hyperlink, so you kind of half read a story, then you link somewhere else, and then you're like, where did I start? How do I get back there? And of course we've got Twitter and we have social media distractions. Okay, so slow journalism has emerged in response to this environment and I've given you a checklist here, although it's not really a checklist because slow journalism doesn't adhere to each of these, but this is what it aims for. So it's non-competitive. Journalism, capitalistic journalism is a competitive environment, but that's part of the problem. So slow journalism doesn't care about a scoop, all right? It doesn't care about being first. It avoids sensation. It avoids herd reporting. I should let you know the technical term for herd reporting is called the clusterfuck. And that, that is when you have people from media organisations all over the world turning up to a royal wedding. And you think, how many angles on this are there? You know, do you all really need to be here? Okay, slow journalism takes time to find things out. Um, it's produced at the right speed, and, and Beth mentioned this idea of tempo giusto, which is the slow food notion of there is the right speed for certain things. So, of course, we need to know about a hurricane and we need to know about it quickly. Um, but there are other stories that are going to take a lot longer to write, and they might be stories about climate change rather than just reporting on the weather. Okay. Slow journalism tends to be narrative, it tends to be longer form, it's, it's about quality, it's about ethics, that's about how you treat your subjects and how you treat yourself as a journalist as well. Um, it also sees the audience as co-producers and this is something I'm going to come back to in a minute. Slow journalism is also very big on pleasure and it's big on transparency, about actually making clear the process to the reader. What slow journalism also does is offers a critique of the concept of news itself. And I have to say, when I started working on this, this resonated so much with me. Because even though I teach journalism, I actually hate news. I, um, I, I just don't care about news. I've always thought it should just be bullet points. It's the most boring kind of writing. But I teach feature journalism, which is actually about pleasurable storytelling. So I thought I would give you a few examples, just because this is a bit abstract at this point, so you might want to see. Okay, 21 is a French magazine that comes out every three months. It started in 2008, and they identify as slow journalism. And their position is, every three months they look over what has happened, and they say what mattered, and that's what we're going to write about slowly. Okay, and it's in print. Um, C'est Moi is the photojournalism version of that that comes out every six months. And this one, Delay Gratification, used to be my favourite magazine. Um, it's produced by two men called the Slow Journalism Company. 
And their tagline is, the last to breaking news. And they take a very similar approach to um, 21 in that they come out every three months. Um, and I've actually been to their offices in London and they have this huge whiteboard and the stories come up and they just keep discussing and discussing. It's a huge editorial process. And they go, that mattered, that didn't matter, that mattered, that didn't matter. Then they um, pay people to actually write really thoughtful pieces about what mattered in the last three months. Okay, there's one more I want to show you. I mean, they're resilience and, and they're global, but this is called De Correspondent, and it's a, a Dutch online um, journalistic operation. And it's about to, it's been incredibly successful and it was found, found, funded by crowdfunding and it's about to start in New York. But I thought I'd just read the words of Rob Weinberg, who's the publisher, and he says, the news fails to deliver on its single biggest promise to tell us what's happening in the world. People who follow the news mostly know what doesn't happen. It portrays the world as a never-ending string of sensational, unusual, terrible, rapidly forgotten events. In contrast to fake news, which is misleading because it's simply untrue, Real news misleads us in a subtle and more fundamental way. So they're saying at De Correspondent is, we report on the climate, not on the weather. Okay. So, as for the reader of slow journalism, what does this mean for you? From slow food, I want to introduce you to the concept of co-production. Now, Carlo Petrini started the slow food movement in 1988. And in a lot of his books, he talks about this concept, co-production. And what he means by this is not that you as readers are contributing to the journalism in terms of how it's researched or written, although the correspondent does ask their readers to do that. What he means is that you need to develop a kind of media literacy so that you understand where your news comes from. The responsibility actually is down to you. It's like that slow food idea of paddock to plate. Okay, so if you're going to read some journalism, where did it come from? How is it produced? Is it ethical? And also, where does it end up? You know, there's an environmental consideration here as well. The other question you need to ask as a slow reader of journalism is, how much news do I need? And I think when I read this, I, I just thought, yeah, how much do I need? I don't need this much. When do I need it? and what really matters in the news. Okay. There's a term I came across when I was reading this book on the weekend, and it's called informational environmentalism, which I really like. And it's, it's a sense that too much media, too much journalism is a pollutant, just like other pollutants. And it's actually up to us to focus and say, no, don't need that, I'm turning that off, I, I don't have to consume this, okay. And the other issue for the readers of slow journalism is pleasure, and this really interests me. I don't have a soul, but I do like <laughs> pleasure. <laughs> and the issue of pleasure is also a very important part of the slow food movement, mm. and it's something I teach my students as well, because I teach them longer form journalism. And I say the only way people are going to pay attention to what you write 
and it's getting worse, it's harder to get, you know, we're in an attention economy, it's harder to get people's attention, is if you have pleasure in what you write and you convey that. So it's about beauty, pleasure, style, cleverness, all the things that come with good writing can also be present in journalism. And the longer it gets, the harder it is to get people to commit. So I'm going to end with a provocation. If the aim of journalism is to help us understand the world well enough to join in a public or private discussion about what can be done, I'm not sure fast journalism is helping us do that. And the more I think about fast journalism, I actually wonder, I don't think it was the intention of fast journalism, but I think it was an unintended effect. That fast journalism helps us escape from meaning. I don't think it helps us get to meaning. I think it functions as an ideology and it binds us into a culture of instant gratification, loss of attention, bodily agitation and cultural forgetting. And on that note, I will leave you with a quote from Milan Kundra. I did actually read this book. Um, it's about why <laughs> slowness is so important for cultural and personal memory. And Kundra says, the degree of slowness is directly proportional to the intensity of memory. The degree of speed is directly proportional to the intensity of forgetting. And another quote from Ben Agar, who has passed away, but wrote a brilliant book called Speeding Up Fast Capitalism. And he says, alienation involves forgetting, losing contact with the damaged lives that made this world possible. We are taught to forget so that we remain on task. Time is compressed into an eternal present so that we forget what brought us here, so that we extrapolate the present as we know it into an infinite future, forgetting the possibility of utopia. Thank you. Thanks, Megan, for that cheery and uplifting <laughs> <laughs> summary of modern life. I think um, after Beth's notion of the soulful, and Megan kicks off by telling us she has no soul, she needs to read very little news and absolutely no fiction, although, as it turns out, she reads Kundera. But I, th I think you're only reading things that, have, that trap you with their title. If we, if we put a speed word in a title, I think the chance of you reading it is, is increasing. But I think Megan's done some important work in joining up the slow movement, um, which Beth also mentioned, reminding us of this new kind of uh, late 20th century turn against speed um, and, a, and an attention for slowing things down, I guess for attentiveness and for being able to take in more information. And I think from her um, disciplinarily based perspective in media and communications, Megan's been able to give us quite a... Um, an academic snapshot of something that we probably recognise from our everyday lives, 
the feeling of being caught up in a sort of 24-hour news cycle with its endless sort of accelerations but not necessarily um, vast more purchases of understanding of issues that are unfolding in front of us. Um, your account of slow journalism and the very different proponents that are sort of you know, springing up around the world and sort of seeing value in this reminds me that at the moment um, software developers in Silicon Valley are working on an email system that will deliver email but only once a week. Um, and for those of us who live in email worlds, this is either like an incredible nightmare or an absolute you know, relief from a, a sort of a, a workplace injustice that is very crushing. But the idea that you could slow email down to, to a once a week delivery and that we wouldn't use email for things that required you know, speed and instantaneousness, we would probably pick up a phone or, or you know, do other forms of kind of communication, reminds us, I think, that sometimes very accelerated um, situations will produce um, in the form of resistance or alternate possibilities a kind of a slowing down for a different consideration. So thanks very much for that, Megan. And our last speaker, our fourth speaker, is uh, Dr. Francis Deloro. Francis is an interdisciplinary scholar formally trained in archaeology and religious studies. Her undergraduate and postgraduate studies focused on the analysis of communicative cultural artifacts, ontological texts, cosmogenies, analysis of apocalyptic and other world literature. And I feel pretty sure Francis has written that bio note to see if she could trip me up in my pronunciation. <laughs> she also teaches the easier to pronounce writing, argumentation and workplace communications. She's an early adapter of blended learning, flipped lectures, and emerging teaching technologies. And since 2012, she's been developing innovative ways to use Wikipedia as a collaborative writing platform and a vehicle for formative assessment that can be implemented across all teaching units at the university. Francis. Thank you, Anne-Marie. So, that introduction, particularly the last bit, makes it sound as though I'm totally immersed in digitalia, which I am to a certain extent, and today's discussion has made me realise how much I miss my earlier studies and the um, dissection of apocalyptic texts <laughs> and, um, and other world literatures and the Upanishads, the the principal Upanishads where um, a pupil would sit at the feet of the master and, um, and, and learn and um, ingest all these very, very wise concepts and philosophies. But some of my talk today focuses on the practical and the in writing and reading as tools, technologies, media. So they're things that connect us to other people. Um, so, uh, what my archaeology tells me is that we, or my studies in archaeology told me, were that uh, writing is, a, um, is an evolutionary step. So when we began to write, we evolved in evolutionary terms. And so since that, every new uh, incremental de um, development is just that, it's just a development, it extends from writing the art of writing, be it um, pictorial or uh, symbolic or actually um, 
when we began to write Latin, uh, sorry, Latin characters and things like that. And so it is all part of being human and humanness, and it was actually a function, a pragmatic function. It helped to keep societies together. It helped to, um, to be able to um, mediate risks if people could communicate uh, through, from, um, across long distances by sending messages that were able to be um, harnessed or um, uh, preserved and, and carried, portable, so portable messages. Uh, those of us who have studied rhetoric, and I know that there are a few of us here, uh, know that Plato was very sceptical of writing. And, you know, um, Plato said that um, writing put us at risk of becoming stupid because we could no longer use our brains to retain information um, and pass it on. And so we would become um, um, with the introduction of writing. Well, that didn't happen, and that didn't happen, nor did um, the advent of video uh, stop us from going to movies. So we were always sceptical of new technologies, but we also must remember how much they serve us and how, how well they serve us. And so digital media enables us to communicate with people in other countries, to send messages, visual, audio, um, with people that, we might, other, that might otherwise have had to wait um, up to a month to get messages from us. I too like fast aeroplanes, not so much the taking off and landing bits, but I like the fact that I can get somewhere else in, you know, pretty much 24 hours is the maximum amount of time it takes to get somewhere rather than a month in a ship and feeling sick and, um, you know. So in a lot of ways we save time by doing fast things. So I'm not here as an advocate for the fast or for the speed, but um, more as, and, and neither as a provocateur, because I, um, I think that part of the, some of the messages that came from Megan and Beth as well were about the soul and about the way that things engage us emotionally. Um, the students that sat and watched um, pieces of art that they'd selected, um, I'm sure, read a lot more into them than they had imagined they would, but they also felt things that they might not have imagined that they would feel and it might have connected them to parts of their own being and psyche that they didn't think um, they would connect to. And so I too, while I do love writing in di on digital, digital media um, and reading from screens, um, I also really love books old ones and I have a great collection of books and I bought <coughs> some along just to remind myself um, that you know uh, they're very special things to me. An old fountain pen, a typewriter, I used to collect typewriters, so all these things of the past that were uh, that embodied a slower time um, or a time when we did things more slowly do have um, the, the engage us emotionally, so it's the pathos effect that, um, that we're feeling a loss of when we engage with digital uh, 
um, media for reading and for writing. Uh, so technology also enables us to be able to access a lot more reading um, texts than we could if we had to carry around a lot of books. And so um, you're, I'm sure you're all familiar with the Kindle. And the Kindle originally uh, was black on a white background. Today, Kindles can replicate the older book with the yellowing paper. And so you have that sense of um, affect that comes out of reading from a Kindle. But on the Kindle, I believe, I don't actually use one, but I do believe that you can um, carry around thousands of texts, um, unlike many of my travels when I try to bring 10 or more books along and irritate everybody that has to help me with my bags. Um, so we, we have those kinds of things. And of course, the, um, the, the pincer movement and all those things that people struggle with, with handwriting or even um, you know, typing. Beth was talking about the way she's been equipped with some recording device that now allows her to um, dictate her, her, um, her thoughts. Uh, and, you know, it, it might be something that she stays with after mm -hmm. her hands recover. Um, Possibly. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's a very interesting thought to me as well. So, um, really, I think... I'm not going to go through all my examples, but, I, but, I, but just to say that perhaps we can use technology to free up time to allow us to enjoy the things that actually give us an emotional hit, um, like cooking or, you know, and cooking slow can simply mean putting something on a plate and sprinkling salt on it, and it can be totally enjoyable. Um, cooking, um, sorry, Megan and Beth both talked about tempo giusto, which is both the right time and the right amount of time. So putting the right amount of time into something as well as the timing being right for something. Hmm. So I'd just like to leave you with, those, with that idea. Well, that's, okay. a, that's a very nice place to, to end the panel discussion, I think. Coming back to that Italian phrase that suggests the rightness of time, the right time for certain sorts of activities. And certainly um, Francis is giving examples, I think, with a quite long historical reach. Um, Plato sort of forwards to the Kindle to think about reading and writing and how they might work both in and against time. Uh, now, although I am always an incredibly obedient person, my next instruction, according to my uh, MC list, says, Anna Marie Jagos ties together all ideas and opens general discussion. <laughs> so if you can just imagine that I've done that now. <laughs> Every idea, there was at least a thousand of them, released into the ether and tied off very neatly and competently by me. Um, can I just have a show of hands as to how many people might have a well-formulated question? Um, see a great hand at the back there, but so far I see one hand. Is that true? Because if so, I'll continue tying off ideas with the panellists. <laughs> um, okay, let, let's take that question at the back. Sure. Yep. Thank Hi. you. Thanks Hi. so much for a lovely panel. Um, I have a question about deadlines. Um, does slow reading and slow writing mean we can ditch the deadline? 
And if not, um, how do we how do we work with our deadlines and, and slow right at the same time? Okay, great, a great question, and a, and a microphone that you see is you know incredibly calibrated to keep questions <laughs> at a at a short at a short expanse. So the question is around deadlines, something that I know as a group of people working in a university context, we'll all feel incredibly relaxed about. <laughs> deadlines, how do they relate to thinking fast, doing slow? I think you'd have to ditch not the deadline, but the clock, because it's the clock that actually dictates when we do things. And centuries ago, we met people in the morning or at noon or you know, lunchtime or in an afternoon or at night. There were no hours in between, so, and particularly because travel was slow, uh, that they could never ever guarantee they'd get somebody somewhere at 11 o'clock or at 2 o'clock, and it would always have to be at some you know, period of time that was measurable in other ways. Mark, did you have something to...? There's a kind of paradox. Um, as a poet, too, I must say, and I'm thinking of three deadlines I'm late for right now. <laughs> um, deadlines bring to a focus, you know, the kind of uh, the creative cell sometimes. Terra can help uh, just a little bit. Um, and uh, there is a paradox there, but in the moment of, ma of getting the making done, there has to be a kind of transcendence of, of time, the kind of thing that you touched on um, before, Anna-Marie. Um, but certainly, you know, a, a deadline and an idea that there's a certain embodiment to be achieved, and sometimes that time uh, is, is relevant there, sometimes it isn't, uh, helps the making, you know, fashion itself forth. But the paradox is that you still need to find the slow space, if we're going to call it slow, the kind of considered, fiercely attentive, open thing. There's a, uh, there's a, a thing that... Um, Jane Hirschfeld, who's a contemporary American poet, says about lyric uh, writing, think of the poem in particular, she says, uh, a poem begins in language awake to its connections. So you have to make sure that the language is awake, right, uh, in the first place, that it's woken up and you know there's time and mystery involved. But sometimes the moment, the tearing of the, the, the fabric that you spoke of, uh, Beth, can happen um, in a flash too, but mm. it's a certain kind of quality. Deadlines help is what I meant to say. Really. Did you have something there, Beth? Yeah, I was, I, I've been trying to think about the, the name of the um, author who said, um, in response to what is a deadline, um, that's the sound of, what is a deadline, what's that sound? Um, it's the sound of the deadlines whooshing past my ears. <laughs> you know, what is deadlines? It's that whooshing sound of something already gone. Um, I think it's really useful to think of deadlines as a, a kind of constraint, you know, so we think, rather than thinking about it as something that stops us from doing things, um, you know, the constraint um, can quite often actually open, open us up to much more creative ways of dealing with things. You know, that, I mean, there are those more creative constraints than a time deadline. Um, for example, um, you know, constraints of that we set um, students and set ourselves uh, 300 words a day, you know, or 1,000 words a day or 1,500 words a day, um, you know, to which um, 
um, a group of writers and you know I were in the mountains competing to finish a novel. Um, one person hit 500 words a day uh, every day. Um, I went like 200, um, and the one who won went minus 25. <laughs> the one that wrote 500 words a day made the deadline and won the Vogel Prize. We hate him. <laughs> but I think in terms of constraints, right? So there's this um, writer that I love, Georges Perec, a French writer. Um, he belonged to a group called uh, Oulipo, the workshop for potential literature. And their idea was that you set a constraint, whether it's a time constraint or you know, um, uh, you know, no adjectives, no adjectives in this novel. Uh, he wrote a novel called uh, The Void, uh, which has, you know, the constraint was write a novel without the letter E. Right? <laughs> I wonder what the deadline for that was. <laughs> But I think, you know, there, there are ways that we can think about things like speed and slowness, um, the deepness of, you know, soulful reading or thinking versus the shallowness of data. I think it's a matter of actually how we approach them and kind of think about them in different ways that kind of suit the kinds of things, you know, the, the um, tempo giusto or the, you know, the the method, the methodology, giusto, which I don't know what it is in Italian, but thinking about how those kinds of things can actually free you up to do things which are more creative or more soulful within those constraints. That's a very long answer, sorry. I wonder also if writing deadlines, if, if some, some of the, we've got all sorts of deadlines, but somehow writing deadlines strike a particular fear, I think, and is it because the time it takes to clear the space to do the writing is often full of quite accelerated, frantic kind of activities, you know, mm -hmm. where we do a whole bunch of things very quickly, we prepare our teaching, we do administration, we do marking, all sorts of other things, and then we maybe clear a day for writing, and we sit down, and we it's like time has gone into some sort of, we're so slow, two hours pass, it seems like we've done nothing. The kind of requirement to be writerly is sometimes slow. Mm. Is the requirement to be writerly sometimes fast? Is, is, does writing have different temporalities? Well, I, I would say, thank you for that question about the deadline. I've been sitting here thinking about journalism and slow journalism and deadlines. Look, it just, it just depends what kind of, I, I'll speak for journalism, it just depends what kind of writing, what kind of journalism you actually have to do. If you find yourself working in a 24-7 online news environment, you don't even have time to think about deadlines, you just have to keep churning it out. And if that doesn't suit you temperamentally, I tell my students, well, don't do it. You know, that, you don't have to do that job. If you're someone who just prefers to take your time and think slowly, um, there's all kinds of much more extended deadlines and publications you can do that kind of writing in. Um, in terms of what you do on that one day when two hours have gone by, oh, well, welcome to my life. <laughs> I, I publish slowly, but... I'm quite happy doing that. I haven't been sacked yet, so what's the other go? Yeah, I know what, what is required, just to speak to what you're asking about, uh, Anna-Marie, is readiness. Well, I'm thinking of an instance two weeks ago, 
had been marking and doing all those many things um, all day and thought, I've been trying to get out for a walk all day and, and the darkness is falling. I thought, go on out anyway. And I, I went out and within a moment of arriving, I walked past some ghost gums and the image just spoke like that and I spent the, the rest of the walk um, reciting a poem that was coming. So you have to be ready to acknowledge that you have so, you know something opening up for you when it comes, and then I suppose you need to be to ready yourself with craft, you know, to to be uh, to know as much as you can about the craft of composing, and and to have steeped yourself enough in language to have some adequate responses to make to the mystery that comes. Do we have any other audience questions? Is the digital age a con to sell devices? and we're being manipulated at great expense in the same way maybe fast food destroyed nutrition. Thank you. <laughs> Very well formulated. In fact, wasn't it almost lyrical? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Goodness me. Shall I try to use this? I have to speak very softly. I'll try that. Um, look, it appears to be a human enterprise, so therefore there's going to be an, an element of scumbaggery about it. It's a human enterprise, like so many others, so you get assholes and you get saints and angels. It's the usual mix. Um, beware of anything that reduces itself to a conspiracy is one of the, the responses. It's possible that there's an element, everybody's looking for a chance to sell something, but it's clearly much more than that. I think it's sort of organic uh, by nature. It grew without in, in, intention. Um, and some of the devices are really cool. <laughs> yeah, and I think the problem is with, um, with upgrades and things that, that mean that your device ceases to be useful at all if you're not upgrading all the time or you know, updating your technology. So yeah, there, there is, must be an element of, um, well, abuse in the system. Definitely, so... I don't mean so much the commercial part of it, but have we now been swept to see in terms of you were yearning about your old typewriter and you were yearning about your book and, 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 and speaking so lovingly of those things and we, we gave them up so readily. And well, then what? Beth, maybe that relates to your, you know, looking back with nostalgia mm -hmm. notion. Is that something you could pick up on? I'm not sure that... Um, we've given them up, is my feeling, you know, and I think um, Francis was talking about, you know, the kind of um, evolution of technology and how we deal with technology, you know, any kind of big new technology, the printing press or writing itself and the internet um, has always kind of, pro you know, been prophesized as a disaster, the end of, you know, life as we know it. And then, you know, life carries on. And, you know, and I think the most interesting thing that I've noticed just within my lifetime from the 80s um, um, is that, you know, vinyl is back. Mm. Vinyl that everybody said was dead. I don't think CDs will come back because they're too ugly. But vinyl, uh, you know, I mean, records, record covers, they're art objects. People love them. I know people who hold on, have held on to them all of this time, you know, despite all nobody making record players. And, and I think that, you know, the same thing will be true for books, you know, that even those of us who do love, um, you know, I've got a very old phone, but I do love it, and I can't, you know, it, it, it's also something about desire, 
you know, that it fulfills some kind of desire for us, this desire for the next new thing, right? But it doesn't mean that you, I mean, for me, uh, that you lose the desire for the things that were. In, in some ways, it increases the nostalgia. I've got about nine typewriters. <laughs> yeah, and, and books, you know, that um, I can't read because they're full of dust mites, but they're beautiful objects. So I think, you know, I, I don't know if, you know, if it's a con job, you know, who is doing the conning, or is it something that it's, it's not so much about cheating us out of something, but it's actually, you know, about us putting our attention on one part of it and forgetting, you know, so that radical attentiveness, you know, like actually thinking, okay, uh, now we're all looking at digital age, it means we've forgotten the records, we've forgotten the books, etc. but actually they're still there. Well, I, I would not disagree, I feel cheated. <laughs> mm, now yeah, it's come yes, out. Yes, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say vinyls make the best, produce the best sound as well. Yeah. Better than any other um, technology that came after it. So, but we're going back to wooden spoons from having moved to spa plastic spatulas and cutting boards and all the wooden things are coming back. So those um, that hopefully have a, as long a life as they had in the past. Um, so the yearning does bring things back as well. And so we're talking a lot about um, ways of opting out, I guess, of the fast track sort of speedy life and a lot of the slow movement um, maybe, you know, analogous to a pushback to vinyl and so forth. But what about, um, are there attractive or self-pleasuring ways to inhabit the speediness of our digital age? Or, or is it all sorrow and depression at, at our speedy tools? Um. I'll, I'll address that and I'll also address the, the question um, you posed. I really think the, the, it's not an either or situation and I don't think the digital age is a con. I mean, I doubt there's anybody in this room who doesn't get pleasure out, out of using, you know, their phones and digital media and Googling things. I mean, you know, the, the horse is bolted. We're, we're not going back. But... <sighs> Like all media forms across history, when there's a new technology, everybody panics and they say, you know, this is dead, but that's actually not how it works. You know, we don't forget things. Either they, you know, they're replaced quickly, but they come back as, as vinyl has and as my work on indie magazines in print, you know, that's, that's an extraordinary phenomenon. I really think the issue is, again, it's about pleasure and self-monitoring to actually understand how you use each medium and why you use it and not to let yourself get taken over by it. And I'm speaking personally here because my phone has started telling me how many hours a day I spend on my phone and I didn't ask it to do that but it's, <laughs> it's doing that. No, I don't read fiction, but yes, I'm addicted to Words with Friends, which is Scrabble online, and my partner will tell you this is how I wake up in the morning. I just go, who's played with me overnight? And I'm starting to get really worried, and I know I need to monitor, and I know I need to stop, 
and I probably could be reading a book. But, but this is what I, I... And I think when I'm thinking about how we teach, and especially how we teach young people too, because little children now, uh, they're iPad literate, they're phone literate by the age of two and three. And the research that I've, I've been reading about recently isn't anti-digital. I mean, there's concern that people read more deeply when they read in print, um, but the research, we have to say, is actually iffy. There are some studies who say there's no difference and there's other studies. So, so we don't know where we are and we don't have the longitudinal data yet. But I think the key is, is to accept that we have the digital, but we also have print and one hasn't replaced the other. And the other key is we have to teach children how to read deeply on screens. And I'm not sure we know how to do that yet, but there's been some studies that suggest there's been success in doing this. So. Okay, as a, um, a wrap-up, I'm going to ask each of you, in the order in which you originally spoke... To, to give a succinct um, piece of advice um, or a kind of aphorism around the title Reading and Writing Slowly in the Digital Age. What would you want people to take away as a thought from this evening? Well, I suppose I began with a concern uh, that I observe among my um, very smart and in intelligent um, students at this university and the other one that, I, that I'm at. Uh, what appears to me to be a slightly lessened uh, capacity to distinguish, to exercise discernment about what it is that they're reading and its calibre. In particular, a kind of increasing tone deafness to the lyric dimension of writing in, in which wisdom and uh, mystery and love and the things that really count are largely articulated. Um, so. A concern that I have uh, is, uh, and, and that seems to be perpetuated or brought about by, the, by the, the fact that most people are reading indiscriminately and at great pace across a flat surface, so there was this concern. So I'd, my advice would be read a poem a day <laughs> and read it out loud. I, I, I have a poem uh, sent to me a day by email. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I read them out loud. <laughs> um, but to discernment, I would probably add um, not being afraid of and, um, you know, having, um, being more open to a sense of the complexity of things, you know, and that there are a variety of ways in which we can read and write, you know, so that sometimes reading fast is really useful um, and sometimes reading slowly is. Um, you know, um, in terms of when you're sitting there, you've got two hours to write. Um, sometimes, you know, like I say to students, um, you know, notice slowly, uh, write quickly, outrun the critic. That's a very useful thing to do. Race, you know, beyond the confines of whatever constraints are telling you, you know, you can't write this, you're no good, etc. Right? So. It's, it's actually about entering into that space, a digital space. I mean, you know, sometimes it's a sewer. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's dangerous. Sometimes it's wonderful. I discovered Jen Bourbon, um, who's this wonderful poet who made artworks out of um, Emily Dickinson's, um, you know, the extraneous marks on her manuscripts rather than the poems itself, but made an artwork out of embroidering 
um, all of the marks that um, Emily Dickinson made on her manuscripts and created this incredibly beautiful um, artwork represented in digital form um, that came to me, made me look for the book. You know, so it's, think about them, you know, the digital highway as roots to something else, you know, and back to memory, perhaps, you know, so this thing about being distracted and being torn into parts, drawn and quartered, which I think, you know, a lot of us can, you know, um, admit to, that's how we feel, it's quite often how I feel, trying to get everything done on time. Um, you know, to remember um, reading, you know, whether it's on screen or on the page, um, enables us to remember, to put back the pieces uh, of a body of knowledge. Um, the word remember uh, from memoir or membrum, you know, the parts of bodies of knowledge that have been lost to us to the past, that childhood. Um, you know, so these are all just ways in which we can put together some kind of meaning um, to the things that we do. Okay, so I've been sitting here thinking about my aphorism. Um, look, I think it would simply be just be incredibly conscious about why you read and what you read and be equally conscious about what you write and why you write. And I think that would apply to poems as much as tweets. I, I just think that level of conscious awareness is becoming more important. Um, yeah, so the other day I heard somebody speaking in another language about something he'd read and he talked about having drunk six pages so quickly. And that's because of the trick of the language that I can't really express it any other way in English, but he did say drink. And so my parting words are know when to, and at the risk of sounding like Kevin Rudd quoting Slim Dusty, know when to drink and when to sip your reading. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being a great, if admittedly, fairly non-inquisitive audience, um, but certainly very, very engaged um, and, and a great audience to have this evening. Can I just um, ask us all to collectively thank our fantastic panel? Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.